0: Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Break Across.
1: That's
2: right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Gordon Campbell. Coming up on this week's show, we'll talk about recent developments in science and technology.
0: Also joining us is Professor Montgomery Slack, and to talk about smallpox and AIDS resistance.
2: In addition, you can find out how a battery works. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week, right here on Berkeley Grox. I'm Franklin. And I guess I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Gordon Campbell. Back again for science.
0: Yeah, back for the action. All right. All right. What's going on this week?
1: Oh, all kinds of things. And it turns out that uh, we as scientists may soon be replaced by robots. Ooh, that's cool.
0: cool. I mean, I, I was getting tired of all this drudgery, <laughs> anyways.
1: Well, you know, I guess uh, that would place most of the graduate students and postdocs really in academia. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it turns out that a group of researchers at the University of Wales in Aberystwyth have actually uh, developed a robot scientist. A robot scientist? Yes. Is he smart? <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently he can do experiments almost as well as humans can. Uh, but unfortunately, it does not uh, give uh, talks at scientific meetings quite yet. So what, what these uh, researchers have done is they've actually designed a uh, sort of PC benchtop system that is capable of generating hypotheses, carrying out experiments, and interpreting the data, and then repeating the whole cycle once it gets data.
0: Wow, it... It thinks too. It thinks, yeah. That's dangerous, yeah. <laughs>
1: I thought this was one of the three rules of robotics that they were not supposed to uh, violate. <laughs> mm. But so it turns out the robot was given a problem of determining what the function of certain genes in baker's yeast was and had some knockout strains uh with one gene removed and they already knew what the answer was uh but the robot was able to discover what the function of these genes was based on the results from these experiments that it sort of conducted quote in quotes in its uh program.
0: So it must be hooked up to some sort of artificial intelligence software to the uh interpret the data as well, right?
1: Yeah, well, that's that's really the idea is that it's interpreting the data in sort of a broad fashion, trying
0: to link mm-hmm. disparate
2: So ideas. we'll still need the humans to do the drudgery work, <laughs> and then we'll just give it to the computers to analyze That's uh, pretty much about it, right?
1: Computers
0: uh, have not made my life easier so far.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I was expecting them to like be making my breakfast by now. And <laughs> alas, that hasn't happened yet. Aside from Internet porn, they're really not <laughs> useful for much. But if people want to learn more about this, uh, not Internet porn, um, science scientific robots, they can take a look at uh, Nature, Volume 427.
0: what do you think about multiple warhead nuclear missiles?
1: Multiple warhead nuclear missiles?
0: Yeah. They sound like a
1: bad thing.
0: Sound like a bad thing. But uh, the same concept could be used to cure cancer, actually. Wow. Yeah.
1: So we send in uh, nuclear missiles to uh, basically wipe out all the people with... uh,
0: (laughs) Rather than a silver
2: bullet, a silver nuclear missile?
0: (laughs) I mean, it does cure the cancer, too, huh? (laughs) But uh, scientists are using this uh, multiple warhead uh, analogy to create molecules that can uh, strike multiple times on a cancer cell.
1: Oh, I see. So instead of, like, one drug molecule which only has one one time use,
0: basically. Right. So what they're using is uh, these structures called dendrimers, which are uh, branch particles which can uh, hold up to several uh, drug molecules.
1: So it's like it's basically delivering a ton of drugs to one site right. instead of just like one molecule.
0: Very, very specific. In ah. fact, one end of this dendrimer will have a binding site, an antibody. that will bind very specifically to uh, your infected cells. Uh-huh. And then upon doing that, it'll release your drug molecule right at that infected area.
1: Oh, wow. So it's uh, targeted drug delivery. Yeah, targeted, man. Intriguing. Smart cool. drugs.
0: So uh, this was work that was carried out by F. M. H. De Groot in the Netherlands, and while this was done in uh, in vitro, they plan to take these experiments to the in vivo phase in uh, real life uh, animals. Okay,
1: and soon humans as well. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll be waiting for uh, multiple warheads to be attacking my uh...
0: cancer cells. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and other diseases. Yes. Well, I have many of them.
0: But they work in concert to prevent anything really from happening. <laughs> yeah, right. <that's> right. <laughs> so this was uh, reported in the recent issue of. Jack- the Journal of the American Chemical Society.
1: So do you ever uh, get clogged up with some soot?
0: Some soot, like, in my nose?
1: In your, well, (laughs) in your nose, (laughs) in your chimney. I'm not a smoker. I'm I'm Fred. (laughs) Yeah, I'm fresh, too. Uh, Well, apparently it's clogging up the atmosphere. Sucks. Yes. turns out that uh, soot, of course, which is a mostly uh, black carbon byproduct of burning coal and fossil fuels, is having a larger-than-realized effect on global warming. And this according to uh, James Hansen and Larissa Nazarinko of uh, the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies.
0: So is it preventing or accelerating global warming?
1: It apparently is accelerating. Really? Uh, so, so it's not
0: like uh, making the light yeah. reflected?
1: Right. Well, no, apparently not. Uh, so the results show that uh, warming from soot in the snow and ice basically accounts for 25% of global warming uh, observed between uh, 1880 and
0: 2000. So do you know where all this uh, soot is coming from?
1: Apparently it's just be- from people burning, uh, you know, coal and gas. Uh, coal and diesel fuel. And smoking. And smoking. (laughs) Or just being generally sooty, (laughs) as some people may be. (laughs) That exhaust, man. Right. Uh, But this is interesting uh, work, and it was actually uh, carried out with uh, new data from uh, NASA's Terra and Aqua satellites, which are constantly monitoring the uh, changing snow cover and effects of soot on the snow. So it's basically uh, basically sort of newer data that's suggesting we have uh, more to think about in terms of alleviating our global warming issues.
2: Sounds terrible.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's it also looks terrible too. Uh, but if anyone's interested in this, oh, it's published in our our very favorite journal, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS. If you
0: read it backwards, it's samp. Is it is samp? <laughs> I'm
1: I'm 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 always worried about soot on my PNAS. but <laughs> <laughs> dirty stuff, you know. Yeah, it needs to be washed, I guess.
2: Have you ever wondered whether the guy sitting next to you on the bus might be related to Neanderthals? I'm, I'm pretty sure most
1: of the people I sit next to on the bus are related to Neanderthals.
2: In their city, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it turns out that they probably aren't. Uh, oh, no. Uh-oh. A new study has come out that has given more credence to the hypothesis that there really aren't Neanderthals in the gene pool. Oh, uh, so uh, our ancestors did not interbreed. Do we diverge so the from them, perhaps? Yeah. There's been a big debate in anthropology, apparently, about whether humans muscled out their Neanderthal cousins or interbred with them and bred them out of existence. Um, But this new study bolsters the case for a conquest by war rather than love. Oh, what happened to civil rights? (laughs) So what these people did was they were able to get mitochondrial DNA out of Neanderthal bones. And they actually looked at the remains of 24 Neanderthals and compared them to 40 early humans, all roughly about 40,000 years old, from Germany, Russia, and Croatia. And they found that the sequence that they looked at in Neanderthals were not present in their human counterparts, which really suggests that these two species were separate and still are.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so I guess uh, war always beats love.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And And I I thought all you need was love. (laughs) Well, George Bush would agree with that. Yeah,
1: well... (laughs) Are you sure this isn't funded by the Bush Institute for Scientific Research? <laughs> uh, I hope not. It came this um, actually looking at Bush, I would have thought Neanderthals had interbred, but
0: <laughs> <laughs> just yeah, my impression. Really, a counter argument <laughs> yeah. the whole theory, I think. <laughs> We should enter Neanderthal into Google and see what, what it gets us. <laughs>
1: oh well, so if,
2: if people want to read more about uh Neanderthalic species. Uh they can look it up in the March issue of the Public Library of Science, biology. Oh, public library of S- they're actually publishing now in public library of science. Wow. Which is one of those uh, open
1: access journals yeah. which uh, that's right. Yeah. So download for free. Everyone can everyone can access PLOS.
0: <laughs> Not something embargoed by the CIA, huh? No. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science this week. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Professor Montgomery Slatkin will tell us about smallpox and AIDS resistance. So stay tuned. to Berkeley Glocks. When we think of diseases, we often think of their negative effects, uh, fatalities and the epidemics that occur, but a recent finding here at Berkeley suggests that there may also be some positive effects, particularly with uh, smallpox conferring resistance to AIDS. Well, joining us today to tell us about his research is Professor Montgomery Slatkin. Professor Slatkin, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grox today. Thank you. So, could you tell us a little bit of background into this finding that you came out recently? Yes. The...
3: It had already been established that there is a mutation carried in people of European descent that confers resistance to HIV infection. This this mutation is in frequency greater than 10% in Europeans, and individuals that carry two copies of the mutation seem to be immune to infection by HIV. And individuals that carry one copy, which is more than 20% of the population, Mm -hmm. uh, have greatly slowed progress of AIDS once they are infected by HIV. So this mutation, which uh, affects a receptor on the uh, cell surface, inhibits the HIV's ability to enter the cell and lead to AIDS and ultimately death. Now, the question that Allison Galvani and I ask is, why did this mutation become so frequent in European populations? Now, the people who studied this originally in 1998 provided genetic evidence that the mutation actually arose in the fairly recent past, meaning roughly 1,000 years ago. It's hard to give a precise estimate, but it's clearly quite young relative to the overall age of Europeans. And to rise to a frequency of 10% or higher in such a short time, there had to be a significant force of natural selection in favor of this mutation.
0: So are you suggesting there was another plague or epidemic about 1,000 years ago? where?
3: Well, this this was the question. The people who first discovered it suggested that it really was the plague, that is, the Black Death, that ravaged Europe several times uh, during the 1400s and
0: 1500s. Oh, I see. And they
3: said, well, of course, the, the mutation could not have been favored by HIV, which entered human populations only in the 1950s. So, But there had to be some other force of selection. And since the mutation is affecting a major function of the immune system, it's, it's obvious to ask what other disease could have been present. Now, the Black Death and other episodes of plague killed an enormous number of people in Europe, possibly as much as a third of the population of Europe. Right. But it did so over a relatively short period of time. Episodes of plague, even the well-known Black Death, lasted only a few years. And uh, Dr. Galvani and I uh, thought about this, and we decided that as much mortality as was caused by the plague, it wasn't present populations for long enough to allow the increase in frequency of an allele conferring resistance to the plague. And we asked, well, what other diseases could, could do this? And we thought about smallpox, because even though smallpox didn't have the dramatic effects of the Black Death and the other plague epidemics, was always present in Europe uh, and causing substantial mortality, especially among very young children. And there are some historical records that uh, Dr. Bob Galvani looked at to estimate mortality rates associated with the plague. So then we asked the question, we're we're both uh, mathematicians, and we asked the question in a mathematical sense, Suppose this mutation, it's called Delta 32, Mm -hmm. conferred resistance to plague, and then we modeled what we knew about the mortality of plague and when it occurred and and other details. And we showed that even under under the most optimistic conditions, you could never get the frequency of Delta 32 greater than about 1%. And that 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 confirmed our intuition. On the other hand, if you made similar assumptions about smallpox, you could easily get the frequency up to ten percent or greater mm-hmm. in the time that we think there was available for this mutation to increase. And furthermore, there's uh, confirming evidence. Uh, it's known that smallpox was the, the rates of smallpox infection were higher in the northern countries, Scandinavia, and that's also where this Delta thirty two mutation is in highest frequency. So there's Rough confirmation. Now, we can't prove absolutely by this kind of analysis that it was smallpox, but we think we can eliminate plague as a possible explanation, and at least we can say smallpox fits all the known facts. But there, there's just an intrinsic limitation to the kind of historical inference you can draw from this sort of
0: analysis. So, uh, these suggestions, did they indicate, did they give you better insight into how uh, these diseases attack the human immune system?
4: Well, the work we did
3: really doesn't. But people had already established that HIV enters cells partly by using the receptor that's affected by this gene. The so-called cytokine receptor, and uh, individuals that carry one copy of the mutation have half as many of these receptors. Individuals that have two copies of the mutation have none of this type of receptor, and that seems to be why HIV can't enter the cell. Now we don't know whether the, this receptor also is used by smallpox to enter the cell. That's, I and mean, though that experiment can't be done without involving smallpox, which I don't think any. But it is a similar kind of uh, viral disease, so it's not implausible that this receptor mechanically interferes with the ability of smallpox to enter cells and infect individuals. But that's that's hypothesis, as far as
0: I know. Right. So now that you've identified this particular receptor, um, are there other people who are working on possible treatments for HIV?
3: This is not my field. I know that one of the one of the efforts control HIV infection is to take advantage of the fact that this is, if this receptor is interfered with in some way, then HIV can't enter the cell. But that's all, that's all I know. I mean, that's I'm an outsider to that branch of HIV
0: research. Is there any other uh, comments you'd like to add about this finding or some current research you're doing?
3: Well, what this shows, in, in modern human populations, there are quite a number of genetic factors, that is, mutations that have risen to high frequency because of exposure to infectious disease. Uh, The the well-known cases are the uh, mutations that confer resistance to malaria in regions with high malarial incidence. Right. Cell anemia is the best known one, but there are several others that have been discovered. This is one of the first examples that implicates another disease that is smallpox and, and not malaria. And I think I think as people look harder at genes affecting the immune, immune system in humans, I think there will be other diseases, other other mutations like that which can confer specific resistance to diseases. It tells us that the trend in evolution of modern humans is very strongly affected affected by the exposure to epidemic diseases
0: oh, okay so what doesn't kill us makes us stronger
3: yes the survivors are stronger <laughs> right but it, uh, the other thing I've I've done with this, this kind of theory is show that it takes a very long time. So uh, another paper that was published a couple of years ago asked the question: What is going to happen to Delta 32, this mutation in Southern Africa, because it's certainly been introduced by admixture with people of European descent, and the incidence of hiv is enormous in, in many areas of Southern Africa. Right. We showed that it would still take a couple of hundred years before this mutation would increase in frequency to a point where it would have public health implications. That is, it's not going to it's not going to evolve. Human populations will not evolve quickly enough to resistance to AIDS. Surely, there, surely there will be medical uh, solutions to that problem. We hope there will be medical solutions to that problem long before evolution uh, proceeds to that
0: point. So, for this mutation to uh, to proliferate, this means we have to have breeding and crossbreeding, right? Or can the mutation also uh, uh, evolve from other sources independently?
3: I, it's an extremely unlikely kind of mutation. It, it I mean, there certainly is uh, interbreeding between people of different races and nationalities. That happens on its own. Uh, what we asked was the question, given that it enters an African population, somehow what will happen to it?
0: Oh, I see. But
3: it's, it's extremely mm-hmm. unlikely that it would occur independently in Africans. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know whether mutations having the, the same effect could occur or
0: have occurred in Africa, but I don't, I don't know of any evidence. Professor Slacken, thank you for your time. You're welcome. And we were just talking to Professor Montgomery Slatkin on smallpox and AIDS resistance. To find out more about his research, you can check out his website at the Molecular and Cell Biology Department here at UC Berkeley. Go to mcb.berkeley.edu. This is Berkeley are listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, find out why a rainforest needs moisture. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks, and now here's the science lady with this week's Everyday Science.
5: Ever wonder why humidity is so important in a rainforest? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Rainforests grow in a band around the middle of the Earth between the Tropic of Capricorn and the Tropic of Cancer. Although they cover less than 10% of the Earth's land area, rainforests are home to more than half of all animal and plant species. Here in the heart of this Brazilian rainforest, the world's largest, the vegetation is so thick we can hardly see the sky through the canopy of leaves overhead. But what we can see is that it's pretty darn wet. Not to mention the and muddy, and hot. Rainforest temperatures vary greatly, but they typically run from 68 to 90 degrees with extremely high humidity. See all the water vapor around us? The warm air overhead traps the vapor as it rises from the forest and from the surrounding seas, and pulls it upward to form thick, heavy clouds. Up here, these clouds can only hold so much water before... The humidity reaches 100% and that water is released as rain. Once the rain reaches the forest, the high heat inside condenses the water back into vapor, which is again picked up by rising warm air, forming more clouds, which will of course drop more rain. This abundance of rainfall, sometimes up to 500 inches a year, is what keeps rainforests brimming with living creatures. So, in a rainforest, while the rain may go away, it most certainly will come another day. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense.
0: Wow, life is really wet then. And now here's this crazy Scotsman with the answer to last week's question of the week.
1: That's right, it's the crazy Scotsman. I need more power. Last week I asked you how does a battery work. Ah, it has to do with liquids, liquids with different electron affinities. You see, you have electrons which want to go from one liquid to the other, and they know that they really can, and they will in fact, if you connect them correctly. So you put these electrodes on both
0: ends, and the electrons will flow from the one that wants the electrons from the ones that don't want the electrons, and you kind of get the electrons to the that, other way, and that's how you get the power. Mm. Thank you, Crazy Scotsman, and now this week's question of the week. It surrounds us. It binds us. But so what is it? It is our atmosphere. But how much pressure? Mm. If you know the answer, or think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail dot com. You won't run anything, but you'll be out of pressure. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox.
1: Make sure you tune in next week for more from
2: the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, you can reach us at grox at hotmail.com.
0: For Berkeley Grox,
2: I'm Gordon Campbell.
0: And I'm Frank Ling. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.